0: No matter how you slice it, when a vehicle stops on a city street and there's people around for too long, that might only be a few seconds, people get upset. And it's not sexy necessarily or interesting to investors, but it is fundamentally essential um, to a growing operation at scale that this gets solved, just like a sensor gets solved, just like AI gets solved. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As usual, I am high energy Alex Roy opening the show. And I just want to let you know, in case you didn't know, I'm, I'm the founder of the Human Driving Association, the producer of Apex, the secret race across America, formerly Argo AI, although my God, it's coming up on some time since so that came to an end. And now a consultant that I'm, I'm not allowed to plug my business on the show. So you're next, Ed.
1: I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludacris, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors.
2: And I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch, and it's been a minute since we've uh, recorded a news discussion um, or even some interviews, and we're here. We're all here. We're all good. We're still friends. Tonicast is still together. Um, it's not like the all sometimes... podcast where
0: they all hate each other.
2: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Now, but um, as everyone knows in the, in the world, sometimes shit happens that um, needs to be addressed and needs to be prioritized. And the podcast, we, we took a little bit of a break, but we are back now and um, we're ready to talk about what's going on in the AV world and the EV world and the future of transportation.
0: Yeah, because you know be. who else is back? Self-driving cars. Self-driving cars are back, and I I now live inside the geofence of Waymo and
1: Cruise, and I have a lot to say about that. Hmm. Ed. Yeah, let's hear it, Alex. I'm. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're like enough about me. Let's talk How- about you.
1: <laughs> it's, no, look, I'm 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 really glad Ed? to be back and and talking about this stuff with my friends. This is uh, this is great. Alex, tell us about about you. So you're in you're in Arizona now, and you're riding a lot of of AVs. So I moved to Old Town Scottsdale near the Fashion Square Mall.
0: Uh, I am just, uh, which is basically just inside the northern border of the Waymo um, operating area, and Cruz is operating nearby too.
2: You're getting really. By the way, you're getting really close to like sharing your address to listeners. So you know, just keep it. <laughs> don't don't go I mean,
1: what too. Is far. It? No
0: self-doubt. I got nothing to hide. And look, uh, if if you hang out in Old Town and you see a Morgan three wheeler, it's me. And uh, there's only going to be one of them in town. It, it arrived last week at uh, the headquarters of the Human Driving Association, in Arizona, the Auto Car Club Scottsdale. And when it arrived there, um, I'm like, My I'm really going to drive this thing again. Like this thing is totally unsafe. It's totally dangerous. I got to buy a helmet, although I don't think it's required in Arizona." But look, since I got there, I decided I was going to attempt to. Um, I was going to attempt to use Waymo as much as possible to determine if it could, well, first substitute for a a human driven Uber and potentially substitute for car ownership. Nothing will ever substitute for Morgan ownership because it's not a car and you don't expect it to be reliable, but uh, uh, right out of the gate. And this was a a huge surprise. Waymo service has been fantastic. When I was working in Argo, I would frequently travel to cities um, and check out competing services. Uh, it's it's much better than it was when I was doing that those missions for Argo. It's I've had several perfect rides. And the big shocker, it's cheaper than taking a human-driven Uber. I did not expect that. I, I had seen pricing higher than Ubers uh, floating around Twitter. So ask me
1: anything. Go ahead. Ask me anything. Are, so, so are most of the rides – that that you're getting just as a as a normal driver or rider, um, is it mostly driverless at this point? Is it all is it all driverless? Are there all any, driverless, all, all 100% driverless. driverless,
0: yeah, hundred percent so. driverless. And yep. I've been taking them from you know Scot- inside Scottsdale. I've taken them Scottsdale to Tempe and uh, Chandler. Was well, not much going on in Chandler for me, but Tempe for sure, uh, and all over Scottsdale. It's been great. The the most interesting thing. Is trying to compare it to traditional ride hail to the airport. Because airport is for any robo taxi business a critical, critical place to do pickups and drops. And uh, in in Phoenix, uh Waymo's in pickups and drops at the 44th Street um, SkyTrain station. So if you take a Waymo from where I live to that train station and get out, there is a zero traffic, fairly not very frequently used um train station you walk upstairs or you take the uh elevator uh, escalator upstairs and then you are like seven minutes from the terminals and that's it it's over what's more interesting is going the other way when you arrive at the airport and want to take the train outbound if you arrive at phoenix airport at a busy time the wait times for ubers can be long i mean like Fifteen to twenty-five minutes and expensive. And on both occasions uh, that I used Waymo last week, uh, out of the airport, I just got off my po- out of the baggage terminal, went upstairs the SkyTrain, and was on uh, at the station in a Waymo. Pretty much twenty minutes from getting off the plane, which is as good as good as human driven ride hail in its best scenario, and better than it in most scenarios, and cheaper. So. The only potential downside would be if I was lugging a lot of luggage. But one person with a rolling bag and a backpack, it was fine. And this was, for me, that, that's the big unlock for RoboTaxi in Phoenix.
2: Um, now, they did recently add another stop, right, to the 20th. Was it 27th Street? Or is like one stop closer on the SkyTrain? Do you know yeah, about I haven't, that?
0: I haven't. I haven't tried that one. Uh, so I mean, it's just Forty Fourth Street's just closer for me.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing is, um, as someone who also uses the Phoenix Airport on occasion, I typically will fly out of Tucson, but there are some international flights just easier. Most folks park in the long term economy parking lot, and it's basically also on the Sky Train. So for a lot of people, going to baggage claim or getting off your plane and just immediately going to the Sky Train and then taking it. This is, for, for, for those who are unfamiliar to picture it, you pass the terminals, it hits the long-term parking, and the next stop right after that is 44th Street. So what I've noticed um, over the years is it seems like a lot of uh, employees of the airport park out at 44th Street or take public transit from there. Um, so it's used, um, but typically mo- most people just use it to the long-term parking which is one stop short of that. And um, so for me, it's like never been a big deal to take a bunch of bags and ride the SkyTrain. Um, the big benefit, it seems to me, is leaving the airport and going home as opposed to coming into the airport. I could see people starting to use it in, as a hybrid, using human-driven to bring you right to the um, you know departure bank, and then on the way home, when there's less of a time crunch, using um, but but you don't want to deal with higher prices and the weight, Just taking the train to the way. It's
1: it's interesting. Like it's it's one of the ways in which like we're sort of continuing to learn what this technology actually is and how it can actually be used. Right? Like we've spent so long thinking of it as cars that drive themselves. That that the idea that um, to make a robotaxi service viable in, um, you know, one of, as Alex said, one of the most important use cases, which is getting people to the airport, that you actually need a last mile solution for that. That it's part of a system, that it's not an end to end, like 100% thing. And and it makes sense because, you know, one of the hardest challenges in a lot of ways, you don't think of it as being particularly hard because it happens at such low speed, but like the pickup and drop off areas (laughs) at airports just are the worst. Like, they're just terrible. And the idea that um, you know that's something that that's going to be like easy or or smooth for particularly a mixed human automated driver, you know, kind of traffic, um, like that that probably w- is a problem that will will have to be solved to large extent with with infrastructure, uh, you know, or something like that. And and like right now, like you know, airports are struggling to even create the infrastructure that allows the human driven Uber and like ride hailing to to happen in a somewhat smooth and like organized way. And so um, it's just a really interesting – like I think it, it just kind of speaks to how like the, this technology is is going to – it's going to like just create new alternatives. It's not just going to replace one thing because it's not even really a, a, a one-to-one replacement for for a taxi ride. But for example, like if you compare it to driving to long-term parking, right, depending on how long your trip is, paying for that long-term parking might be – quite expensive versus if you just take a Waymo there, you end up at the same place. You spend a lot less money. You have the exact same experience, except that you don't have to even drive to the long-term parking lot and you don't have to pay for long-term parking. And, and so anyway, it's just, it's just, it's just different. It's just not one-to-one replacing cars or even traditional taxi rides. And like, that's okay. We've
2: talked at times about how, um, and I think we've even probably wrongly criticized companies or held them to maybe a really high standard, like, well, they clearly aren't if they can't navigate the airport, then, you know, then it's all for naught. Like they haven't gotten there. But um and and sure, we could still argue that, but I still think that at least right now it's smart to at least be able to deploy and work within the infrastructure rely on the infrastructure that's there as opposed to being like we're going to crack all the hardest stuff right now um, which could create some big problems like you don't want fender benders or like blocking traffic we've already seen a lot of blowback of that happening in san francisco with both cruise and waymo and so it's like do we criticize waymo or any other company for not being able to go through the like Uh, areas that human beings can't navigate really very well or do we credit them for um at least getting to the airport in and using infrastructure and i kind of am moving more towards the latter and that's not to say that you know i saying waymark cruiser any company is like amazing by taking the smarter route but i do think it makes sense as as if if you want to sell the public on this um because Sure, you could have a bunch of media stories saying that you're picking up the most complicated areas, but if you have one problem, you were going to get 10 times more press about that. So it makes sense <laughs> to, to use the infrastructure. And really, when you think about the other city that they're operating in, San Francisco, there is also the BART. And you could argue that you could actually do the same thing where um, eventually, where you know, you leave San Francisco airport and a lot of people take the BART and you can go right into the city. But what do you do when you get to your stop? And let's say you're a mile away from your house. That's where you start to see the robotaxi system fitting in that infrastructure. Like you mentioned, Ed, like you don't have to take it right from the airport, but you could take it to get that last mile from the train stop to your house. Can't jump on a scooter with luggage. Maybe you can order an Uber, but that's where you start to see sort of it working as a network effect as opposed to it needs to do all the things from A to B, no matter what. Otherwise, if it doesn't, it's a failure.
0: Speaking so. of focus on, on public failures, uh, you've both have been following the news from last week with San Francisco, uh, with the report they put out of that Waymo and uh, CPUC. Not closely. Do, I'm know, just going
1: to assume everything is just fine. There's no problems of any kind. You know? <laughs> yeah, Everyone's going happy perfectly. with everything.
0: Well, you know, always. But, you know there, was a, um, there was a tweet this morning, you know, uh, from Andy Banal. Is that how you pronounce his name? And he had a tweet which kind of sums up, uh, I think, what a lot of people I know were saying. If the level of cultural skepticism and critique of autonomous vehicles was applied to human motorists, public streets would be so much safer. And uh, – I mean, I'm of two minds about this because I actually have a lot of faith in the safety of autonomous vehicles. But on the other hand, uh, deploying them without a deep operational bench of people who can do troubleshooting, remote guidance, teleop, whatever you want to call it, um, is, ma- creates a nuisance. And it's really important the companies get that right. And I think I think a lot of what we're seeing, if you look at the, what uh, the city of San Francisco is saying, is there, there's been uptick in incidents of... Autonomous vehicles blocking fire trucks and creating traffic issues, and then this creates ripple effects. And to me, that it, it's not a safety issue first. It's a nuisance issue, and it's a function maybe of – maybe companies don't have sufficient operational depth of bench, meaning there aren't enough people behind the scenes to get vehicles moving when they've paused for issues.
1: But I'm just speculating. Yeah. Well, I mean, so yeah, I think I think there's uh there's kind of a couple things obviously so 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 one piece of this is obviously there's still just things to learn, right so you, so you read about some of these things and it's you know construction workers trying to wave aVs through you know sort of what they think are impassable obstructions, but they aren't really there's so so there is there's like you know is there enough are there enough resources on the ground or is there simply still so much more to learn about this technology, but I think you touch on something alex that's that's interesting which is that like San Francisco is also kind of a battleground between sort of tech and sort of everyone else and there's a lot a lot of the sort of amb- ambivalence that that exists across the country and around the world of of you know sort of the power of technology and what they're doing with it and 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 their accountability or lack thereof and things like that like those issues are very very heightened and concentrated in San Francisco so it makes sense to some extent, that that like there is this higher level of scrutiny. I think what you're getting at is that though these delays maybe you know are are, are clearly real, or these problems are clearly real. That there clearly is, is is work to be done. That maybe the the furor about it is about more than just the inconveniences that it causes on the road. Like that the the furor about it is not maybe entirely in proportion with the with the actual problems on the ground.
0: I don't know if we, I haven't known, I don't know if I've seen enough data to know, uh, but one thing's for sure human drivers I mean P, the argument's been made many times that humans are pretty safe. therefore AVs don't have a, a role and but humans create I mean I, in fact almost hundred percent of the issues we see on our roads are created by human drivers. I'm not saying the crashes, but humans make decisions all the time that are suboptimal or inefficient. And so it makes perfect sense that you put AVs on the road that even if they're safer than human drivers, that the nuisance factor is a different problem to solve. And the two things should not necessarily be conflated. So if you have an AV that hesitates in an unknown situation, what kind of hesitation was it? How long was the hesitation? What is the depth of bench behind the scenes that can resolve that? And most importantly, what would a human have done in that situation? Would they have just driven through? Uh, and is that less safe or more safe? And so the blanket, you know, negativity around AVs that has, I think, peaked in recent months. Um, I think it's, I think it's unfair. I think it's unfair.
2: Well, I, it, it's also the product of, I think Ed was pinpointed this, which is San Francisco has for more than a decade now become kind of this. Um, <laughs> the battleground of tech versus us versus them, the sort of blowback on tech. And we've seen that from, you know, way back to, if you remember, the the tech shuttles and uh, <laughs> real estate prices and like the disparity of wealth. And so there's, um, I think some of the blowback on AVs is just, AVs are a reflection on one hand, exciting technology, and on the other hand, another representation of tech that is creating nuisances and not thinking of all the rest of us. For instance, when Waymo um, was going down the same street and turning around the cul-de-sac and it was like this endless flow, the people who live there were directly affected by that. Now, was it unsafe? No, but it was a nuisance and it was a problem Um, when a cruise vehicle doesn't um, pull over for a police officer, you know, is it a safety problem? It could turn into a safety problem, but again, it's this reflection of, well, here's another tech product that wasn't fully thought through. At least this is like what public perception can, can have. So San Francisco is, I think, always going to have this tension I don't think that that tension will ever go away. It's also Even, a hard city
1: to drive in.
2: It right? It is. Like it's
1: just it's it's, And I think that's one of the pieces that's easy to forget here is it's, it's a very different place to drive than Phoenix. And, you know, I've certainly found myself like feeling like an idiot behind the wheel in San Francisco more than a lot of other places. So that's, that's a piece of the context as well. One,
2: right? one thing I like them to solve is what I, you know, I think that's causing a lot of problems is a lag problem. Meaning, the car stops because of you know, an ambulance or fire truck and creates this backup. And that moment where that problem to it's solving it isn't fast enough. Hmm. So is it possible for a human being to also get confused and not really know what to do? Absolutely. But within 30 seconds, they kind of figure out how to go around. They're not sitting there for five minutes. And Five minutes might not seem like a lot, but five minutes in San Francisco on a busy street is a freaking nightmare. Like yeah. you're going to get a line. So i like to see companies focus on that and also that communication factor. How do these vehicles interact with human beings on the street?
1: So that's the, that's the, is that, and here, the flip side of this for me, at least is, you know, having been at like at PAVE and, and being part of like all these conversations, you know, there's been a lot of people from a lot of these companies that have talked a lot about, Their relationship with the cities that they operate in, and the and the the law enforcement, and how they train them, and 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 like, you know, I'm not like the fact that that these companies have had this, like they've understood that this is an issue, and they've been working at it for a long time. You know, that doesn't that in itself doesn't mean that these problems are are like you know hypocritical or much worse or anything, but. But, you know, like with a lot of things with AVs, you know, fundamentally, the, the problems do stem from a gap between expectations and reality. Right. And and so to some extent, it's not that the, as we kind of agree, like like the reality is not ideal, but it's also not catastrophic. Um, And I think that, the you know, in addition to sort of the whatever, like kind of tech culture war sort of issues that that just part of that is just that. You know, this technology is not performing up to the level that that a lot of people, including ourselves, like I mean, you know, certainly i I didn't I thought that that there was sort of, you know enough effort around that. I would not have predicted that at this stage in in the development that that these kinds of problems would be happening just based on, you know, sort of again, like all the interviews and conversations that I've done over the years with people at these companies who've talked about, again, collaborations with with local law enforcement and stuff that go back you know, years and years and years Years, now. Um, but again, I think it's just, it's just a tribute to, to just how, how tough it is.
2: Well, and also it is, it's attributable to also the, um, any tech is that there's a difference between conversations and testing a lab, even on public streets and commercial deployment, commercial deployment, a lot of new wrinkles, uh, suddenly appear that you thought might have been solved and, and, and AVs are, are part of that. Uh, one question is what is, uh, in terms of public perspe- perception, not like technical ability, what are the areas which are just will kill or end um, any progress on the AV front in terms of public perception? Because something came up in San Francisco this week and, you know, in private conversations it was like well is this the thing that like changes public perception around AVs and it was this incident with Waymo driving in autonomous mode with the human safety driver behind the wheel a dog runs out into the street dog gets killed um and it seems based on conversations I've had that it might have been unavoidable like completely now there's reading through the incident report doesn't provide a ton of details so i want to hold back from weighing in if it was technically like if it was a technical problem or not but let's talk about perception for a minute so i'm gonna i'm gonna say what no
0: av comms person wants to say i'll say it in their defense Uh, everybody knows when a vehicle leaves the house there is a non-zero chance of me happening the best vehicle ever made, the best sensors, the best tech, the best driver. There's some things you cannot avoid. And a small dog um, on an urban street coming out, like that may not that be very difficult to see. Certainly really hard to see you know, for a human driver driving an SUV. And even if an AV could see it, maybe too close to stop for. This is – it's terrible. I love dogs. I love kids. I have a daughter. But some things are unavoidable, and I'm going to give Waymo the benefit of a doubt on this one. Um, because it would be crazy to for this to be the thing that anybody thinks is a, is damning for the AV industry. No, I, no.
2: But um, you, but you are a supporter, or at least you know, deeply involved in in the AV space. What I'm talking about is for everyone else. You know, is you're, you're, this? You're, yeah, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. So I,
0: it shouldn't I'll, be I'll, but the AV sector needs defenders because in, on this particular example, because. This is not this is not the thing that should be held against the industry. And by the way, it's really important. And you, you can see this in the San Francisco City um, you know, complaints about the AV uh, players. The players are not all the same. They're not. They vary widely in the technology, in the application, in the policy, in the operations, the safety. They vary on like eight dimensions. And it's important that we get granular when we talk about players being not painted with the same brush.
1: Well, and and the other thing is, is that I think, you know, as, as humans, we tend to look at this technology and, and sort of and, and we compare it to ourselves and like, how likely am I as a human to end up in the position that, that the AV is in as a human? I think this is why these like, you know, blockages of the streets and stuff, they're so frustrating because for a human, it's really not that, that hard. You just have to go through a narrower gap than maybe is comfortable. It's uncomfortable, but you just go real slow and you just go through it and you don't you know, you just have the adaptability. You're not going to just sit there for five minutes and hold up traffic, right? Like that human sees that, and they're like, I, "That couldn't be me. It could never be me." But if a dog runs in front of your car and you and you can't stop and hit it, that could be you. That could be any of us. That could happen to anybody. And so, I don't think this incident is something that people are going to look at and say, like, "This is, you know, a watershed or whatever." Um, I think, but I, but I, you know, it, it's a reminder that, as exactly as Alex says, that like things happen on the road that are unavoidable to the best drivers and to the best, you know, systems. And, you know, it's a reminder that there will be other things in the future where, for example, maybe there's another human death, um, you know, and if you look at the sort of furor around AVs and and the place that they occupy in our society and the sort of debate about that, about what it is and what it should be and what kind of controls we should have or whatever, I do think we're clearly entering a different period than say 2018 when the last sort of, or the only real sort of AV related death happened um, in, in Tempe. And so I do think that this, all of these things that are happening do kind of, you know, illustrate that the, the context has shifted and that if another, you know, companies really do need to, to really be careful because if another human death happens or if there's anything, that again, like a human would look at and say like that, there's no way that I would have made that mistake that like the, the stakes are, are, are high now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it does like in this case, you know, if you read through the incident report and again, like I said, based on conversations we've had or reporters had here at TechCrunch is that the trajectory of like how the dog, you know, entered, it seems like it was like completely unavoidable. I think the one, important detail is that the av system did see it but it wasn't possible to respond to avoid it in any way and we've unfortunately like a lot of us have had those incidents ourselves right like it like there's nothing you can do um the elaine Hertzberg um death was different in that it was some distance um and you know automatic emergency braking <laughs> Um, was disabled, and probably even that basic tech would have would have um, prob- possibly saved her life. Um, so yeah, it's different. It just I like to think through the sort of public perception part because there are going to be people who will point to this incident or others that will likely happen as like see, it's not as safe as human drivers. And the question is whether, Um, that will gain any momentum, or if it will just be a very small, you know, minority of people who think that way, that it won't um, prompt city officials to, you know, take that as fodder to, you know, create stricter policies. Like we don't really know. Um, I think this incident probably won't, but I could see something else happening that will.
1: So I actually have a question for for the two of you, since you, I've been a little bit out of Know the loop for for about a month now, um, and I'm curious. You know, obviously, all the all this hype about large language models, um, in particular, you know, one of the really interesting uh, topics was always, and this is getting back away from the the dog incident and more towards just these blockages, which all, a lot of times, you know, are just a failure of the system to be able to interpret very unusual edge cases with construction or light or traffic or whatever else, uh, and, and particularly communication. So there was some talk, you know, years years back about you know the different ways that AVs could communicate intent or or could maybe even start to interpret intent or whatever. I'm just curious, are, are any of these companies, and and I'm like hesitant to even go here because it feels like <laughs> applying a tech solutionism band-aid to what's already kind of you know overly seen as a tech solutionist technology, but like is there talk, is there experiment, is there chatter about the potential for large language model technology to be implemented in a way that might allow a worker a construction worker or a police officer emergency responder or something to say you know hey like you're entering a, a tight choke point but you can make it just drive through slowly and that the system might be able to turn that into something like I, I i'm just curious if, if if anybody's even talking about that or if i'm just a little bit ahead of the hype curve on that alex <laughs> uh, i i
0: have not heard anyone talking about that um I have heard of some very interesting LLM applications in transportation, but I can't talk about them.
1: But not, but not in the <laughs> context not, that not, you're
0: describing. Not um, as a
1: tool, like to comp to complement teleop or whatever, as a sort of edge case management. Why
2: would you need? Why would you need like generative AI to do that? Because not generative. I so think- so- well, so oh, it, it just using large language. Yeah, to, it okay. would be
1: more about allowing the system to interpret verbal instructions, right? The problem ah, is that these cars okay. get stuck, and like, there's the one in particular. I think it was the the cruise one where there was like construction workers that were like trying to wave it through, and they couldn't. They couldn't, um, uh, you know, they couldn't communicate with it, and and um, I don't know, like like it. Well, you know, l- let's be clear. Let, let, let me clarify. Just
0: for anyone listening who doesn't know this, any AV company that's serious has an operations team, and there's a bunch of people in a room. It, it, we all want it to look like NORAD in war games, but it's just a bunch of people behind desks. And they're monitoring the vehicles. And in a, I want to say, very well-run operation, when a vehicle stops and has difficulty resolving something, there might be some variation of a timer. And if the timer surpasses a certain threshold of stops and you know can't resolve the situation someone in operations would be tasked when the clock runs out to give either a go no go command that's remote guidance or maybe actually drive it with a joystick or wheel that's that's you know pure teleoperation there is debate over which of these is better i'm in the remote guidance camp because it's i believe it's safer and the vehicle uses its onboard you know, sensors and path planning to resolve the go/no go command, and then there are people who do teleop, and there's that's a little more controversial. Uh, those two things shouldn't be painted with the same brush either. But no matter how you slice it, when a vehicle stops on a city street and there's people around for too long, that might only be a few seconds, people get upset, and and so if there's an emergency <laughs> responder um, waving at a vehicle or trying to give it instructions and that vehicle has been sitting there for too long, which depends on where you are, if the company operating the AV doesn't have a human behind the scenes who are aware of that, that's not an AV problem. That's an operations problem. Uh, A company like FedEx or UPS, where their operations are so baked, like they're microwaved, um, would never let something like that happen if you're running such a fleet because every second counts, your business is tuned perfectly. Uh, profits depend on every second counting. Robo taxi companies are not at a level of maturity where every second counts. They're still working on other things. So this isn't fully baked. I'm not here to talk about the merits of Argo, but I will. Argo had a lot of this really well-baked. And it's not sexy necessarily or interesting to investors, but it is fundamentally essential um, to a growing operation at scale that, this gets solved just like a sensor gets solved just like ai gets
1: solved but see but see that's the, where the tension comes in right because to to drive towards a solution or to establish that you have you are solving things you want to you basically the goal is going to be to reduce the number of human takeovers are uh, not human, but, you know, human, human interventions. Right. So that, because ultimately like, like viability, the goal you're getting to is to reduce those to the point where, you know, you can start harvesting the economic advantages of, of, you know, very, very few humans needed in the overall operation. So there's going to be an incentive, right? Like to, to do that as little as possible. And that may be kind of what's going on in these situations is that maybe these companies are a little hesitant to just hand over because behind the scenes, their investors are looking for progress in terms of- Well, of course right, they are. We of want to drive down so this number. Say,
0: I'll say what the AV companies once say, Of course they are. And yet, um, the countervailing force is that if you don't have enough humans behind the scenes in the early days, so you can increase the ratio of vehicles to operations humans, if you get it wrong in the early days and you have too few people early, then you introduce community level problems. And, you know, potential regulatory push, which potential regulatory pushback. So it is a fine dance. Um, Everybody is operating in the shadow of Elon Musk's, you know, proclamations from seven years ago or 10 years ago. No humans necessary, no tele, no guidance, no people. And so this is um, absurd. There's no, this is fundamentally a customer service situation. Every company on earth wants to reduce the number of customer service people to paying clients, but we cut it too much and clients go away. And we're, this is going to happen in this sector too. This, and that's it. This, there's no way around it. And that's why Timothy B. Lee in his latest piece, Death of self Driving Cars is greatly exaggerated. He's absolutely correct in placing Tesla in a completely different category from other, every other company. Because if they were ever going to operate a robotaxi taxi fleet, even if they don't own the cars and owners like myself want to put their cars on a Tesla network where it's robo-taxied, um, someone's going to have to operate at a call center. And the people in that call center will have to have some ability to move a car remotely somehow. So I'm not aware that that backbone infrastructure or division exists even in Musk's mind. And what certainly I'm not aware of is I have not seen anything in the cars that would enable a remote guide or operator to move one in the event they're on the Tesla network and block a fire truck. So there's a lot more to be learned about the feasibility of that business.
1: Yeah. When it's interesting that that people, right? Like, like, it's, like we're so used to being like, oh, that driver is just an idiot. That driver is just an idiot. Oh, that person's like, okay at driving, but that person's an idiot. But when you get into these, these things, then all of a sudden it's one driver driving all these vehicles and it's a brand. And like, like every – like so, if you do, for example, I mean, like <laughs> it's just a way to make you know Tesla's even less likable. Would be to put them out there and and right, it, it, it's a it's just a it's a such a totally new way of 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 thinking about like brand management, where you know because again, like like the individual, like like Uber and Lyft, like they're to some extent, people say, oh, like Uber drivers tend to be bad drivers or whatever, and like there's always going to be some of that, but fundamentally, everyone knows that each Uber driver's individual. Whereas with this, it's like you're making every time one of these vehicles screws up or, or inconveniences someone, you're hurting your your entire brand. The you know the, the image of the entire fleet. It's it's a problem.
2: Well, right, because uh, if if you if you cut me off or if you're looking at your phone and are slow to accelerate through a traffic light, um, I don't necessarily know you. You're not a company that I can choose not to buy or um, their products or disparage online. You're just, yeah, some just random.
1: harass them unless they have their like <laughs> Twitter account on their yeah. car or something. Yeah. And,
2: and with Uber drivers, sure. There are some certainly still particularly in the early days where it was very clear, like they would be branded an Uber or a Lyft, particularly with the Lyft pink mustache back in the early days, if you remember that. Um, but just like a FedEx or UPS, highly visible companies, or Amazon, these companies are very well aware of the blowback they get because of – and it's directed not towards the driver. It's directed towards the company, right? So AV companies are in that same boat, essentially, because Waymo and Cruise, very easy to identify, colors, name plastered all over the car. I mean, this is – then all of a sudden it becomes – very big company problem. Um, and we're not saying, oh, that damn robot. We're saying, oh, Cruise or oh, Waymo. Or, you know, maybe someday if the Tesla Robotaxi idea actually ever becomes reality and not fiction, uh, you know, there might be some bad comments around the Tesla Robotaxi as well. So I did want to talk about one other AV company before we move on. Uh, there has been, of course, in the past, let's say 18 months or so, and really actually pers- even before that, but a lot of consolidation, um, a lot of pivoting, <laughs> if you will. And one company that we always, I, I probably always thought, um, had a really good chance of doing well was neuro, um, in part because, um, operation heavy, right? So people are required, but, uh, no one can get in the vehicle. So you can bypass some of the safety concerns. I mean, there's still safety concerns, but a little bit different delivery, which during the pandemic, of course, was, you know, a huge sweet spot. And, and a lot of companies, including the, the gig gig economy really leaned into delivery, but even neuro is, um, this month, um, this past few weeks has run into problems. And really it's been a problem that's kind of been persisted for the past year. This is the second time, I think maybe even third time, but I think second time that they've restructured, they've kind of changed everything. They've laid off people. um, And this was a high flyer. I don't know if either of you um, have opinions on this, but what I found was interesting is their decision to change how they're going to do – their development. So, in order to save costs, instead of doing development at the same time as doing pilots, at the same time as doing commercial operations, they're now kind of pausing the last two steps and just focusing on development, which um, will save them money, but also uh, and it will extend their their runway. But I don't know if that's necessarily the best approach because they're not commercially deploying. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, well, you know, I have, I've always had like a positive point of view about uh, around Nero. But this is going to sound crazy. But behind the scenes, several people said to me, and I fully agree, that when they laid off, with Greg Rogers, like, what is going through the heads of people over there? You need, you need really positive. Um, you need to retain people that have like, lend the company a glow. Especially in the policy space, and you know how many other folks should have were let go that shouldn't have been. You what know, cost cutting when you lay people off is it's it's art, not science. When it's treated like just pure math, it is unwise. Unwise. Yeah, that's all I'll say about narrow.
1: I mean, I look like I I think it's it's actually a really interesting move because right, like we don't see. Cruise, uh, you know, Cruise or Waymo or some of these other companies, um, sort of making similar like that. Like those companies continue to be in sort of we're scaling mode, and that, it, it, I think we've t- discussed this. Well, on, even on Waymo the
2: show. has cut back a tiny bit, but not in the same. Certainly not they're in the same to, way as others. they're going to Miami
1: now. They're going to new. You know, they're they're open. They're still opening new markets. They still seem to be right. in a mode where you know their investors clearly want to see. Their ability to scale sort of demonstrated, and what's interesting about that to me is that you know basically what what the founders of Neuro said in their in their blog post um, and in TechCrunch's wonderful write up uh, of the news was that um, you know essentially as the technology as the the uh, you know autonomy gets more and more mature um, is able to operate over larger areas, then you know they'll sort of go back that that will allow them to get the the unit economics to where they need to be essentially. And and that's the fascinating thing to me about Waymo and Cruz is it's like, okay, like especially you know, they're, they're proving that that they can scale, that they can go to new cities and, and stand up operations. Certainly Waymo is, I would say in particular, proving they can go to new cities and stand up, um, you know, credible operations. But like what we still don't know are the unit economics. And and you know I know Alex you mentioned that that the prices of a Waymo are very competitive with a uh, with a Uber in, in in at least in the Scottsdale area but but what we don't know is you know is Waymo choosing to lose a certain amount of money on each of those rides or are they breaking even on those rides and they've been very 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 tight lipped about the economics part of this and I think you know that's ultimately you know where this is all going and so so to me it's i i have to assume they have a high level of confidence in their path to positive unit economics otherwise why scale right you can't make it up on volume if you're losing money on every ride you can't just make it up on volume that especially with this technology that doesn't work that way at all uh, but on the other hand this industry has been you know plagued by w- wild over optimism too and so like a- and it wouldn't be surprising either if if their investors are like we want scale and like we don't really we're not too hung up on the unit unit economics for whatever reason like that might well be the case as well so it in a way i actually really respect this move by neuro because it it's an admission it's the most frank admission i think we've had so far that Really, the, the rubber hitting the road part of this, which is the can this be a viable business, is is not is not there yet. And they're they're acknowledging it. It must be a tough thing to do when you've been worth, I don't know, how many billions of dollars was Neuro worth.
0: Speaking <laughs> of acknowledging something that a lot of people have been saying for a long time, can we please talk about Jim Farley getting on a Twitter space with Elon Musk and announcing at Ford is going to go with the Tesla charging standard.
2: Sure. We can end the show by mentioning Tesla again, yet again, but it was big news. A- it was, it was big news. And it was interesting because one, when Tesla, let's see, I guess it was about six or seven months ago, kind of announced that it was opening up the design and open sourcing. It's, um, charging port and charging infrastructure and calling it NACS. Um, I was. It was clear what they were trying to do. They were trying to make it the standard, but I really didn't see many takers. I will say, even though it is, despite some other criticisms I have around Tesla, the best in terms of the most fluid, easy, no barrier charging system that is out there. Um, compared to what I've experienced with Electrify America and many of the other third-party um, EV charging stations, that just—it's easier. It's literally easier than pumping gas because there's no credit card involved. There's no interface involved. It's just like plug in. I really didn't think any automakers would, in any way, jump on that. So I was pretty surprised, actually, when Ford decided to do that.
1: Edward, Alex. Well, no, I'm I'm curious. Were you Were you surprised? I was surprised. Uh, all right, so I was super surprised. Uh, super, super
0: surprised. However, I know a lot of folks, senior at Ford, who have Mach E's and have, who have a lot of Tesla seat time. And for two years, they've all been saying, "Man, why can't we have a charging experience as good as a Tesla supercharger?" So, what becomes really interesting is, all right, what happens? with Electrify America and the other networks because if they don't get their charger station uptime up to tesla levels and you're an EV buyer what are you going to do especially if you're a luxury EV buyer like what are you going to do because we are now several years into EA networks you know being out there and I still can't say to friends that they can who have any CCS uh, equipped EV that they can go on a road trip reliably. In other words, when you go on a road trip, you go on vacation, you plan it, you don't build in an extra two days for charging. And yet, if you're going in a CCS equipped vehicle, you might have to. And you only do that once before you bring the car back. You're like, I don't know if I want to keep this car. And so this, this could precipitate one of two things: either companies luxury EVs are going to offer two two ports on the car, which is an extra cost, um, or they're just going to go with uh, the Tesla standard in the future. In this country, it doesn't matter if what the federal government says. If it says, "Oh, CCS is the standard," if if customers aren't get isn't good enough for customers who actually buy the cars.
2: So the interesting couple of things that may or may not happen. First of all, uh, EA is still better than many other <laughs> experiences out there. It is. And so that's saying something. And and my biggest issue with EA has always been, um, for one, this was the product of a federal settlement. And so the motivations behind it are a little different. Um, and maybe that's evolved. Um, and hopefully Volkswagen, you uh, recognizes the importance of it. But the fact that Volkswagen couldn't even figure out how to have its own vehicles, be able to drive up and you not have to have an app and for you not to have to have a credit card and just be able to plug and play from the beginning. This is a subsidiary of Volkswagen was, is saying something. I I never understood that just like complete misstep. Talk about a missed opportunity because had they done that from the beginning, it would have probably propelled sales because again, it would have been on maybe not exactly on par, but certainly in the same general level as the Tesla supercharger experience, which is you're not pulling out a credit card. You're not pulling out a mobile app or a dongle or any of those things. You don't have to worry about any of that. You pull up, you plug it in and you're done. Um, So that was a total missed opportunity. Um, The question I'm, Kind of wondering, I I don't know what the answer is, but we've seen over the past probably year and a half or so a number of companies saying that they're going to build out their own branded network. So, Mercedes, for instance, Um, Rivian, do they choose to start going over to the Tesla standard, the NACS standard? Or, I mean, right now they're CCS, but they're not that. Built out yet, Rivian only has a few. If they start going, then it starts putting a lot of pressure on other third party providers for sure.
0: Honestly, I would, why doesn't I mean, I, I own um, two adapters, an uh, ACS to CCS, and I used one of them with a Tesla charger at home with the Ford Machi that I had borrowed, and it was
1: perfect, seamless. Why, why um, not just use adapters? Why That's because See, and and here this is because because right. So so standards are political. Like it's incredibly political. And CCS is a global industry standard. I don't know. I, I don't know the details of actually about China. Like, do they use CCS there? I assume they do. Remember, there's two things going on here. There's
0: there's the there's the connector, and then there's the charger uptime. Right. You could know, give away you can give away adapters all day long, but at the end of the day. Um, people are going to want to use this, the charger that works. Right.
1: But if you have the adapter, you can use the charger.
2: Right. But the I Tesla think it block. goes beyond the adapt. It goes beyond the adapter problem because let's say um, CCS isn't necessarily bad, but if you look at the interface and how, and how they've kind of failed on the software side of things, that to me is the real weakness. Um, but, you know, but, but more than theory, anything,
1: but, but, yeah, and so okay, I, so here here's here's the way I see it is that is that it's a very interest it's a strange move that like the you know, the entire industry has sort of agreed that we have this one standard that no one really controls. And it may not be the best one, but everyone is sort of an equal more or less an equal player within that standard. And even Tesla helped shape the CCS standard. You know, they were involved, they were in that SAE committee. So so the idea that they have nothing to do with that is like not not the case either, and 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 you have Ford being the first right in like if time had just gone on, Tesla has talked about opening up its its chargers to other automakers for years and years and years, and no one's taken them up on it for for I'm sure lots of lots of different reasons, but I think fundamentally the main one is you're going from a, a standard that everybody else uses and no one controls to one that is Tesla's standard, and um and I think that that you know. The, One defection opens up the possibility that, well, maybe this is the start of a broader shift or something like that. That said, I don't think that's the case. To me, what this signals is you know, Ford is generally speaking, you know, like a lot of other players I think in the industry, moving towards. Um, a, a shift in their business model towards smaller volumes and higher margins. Ford is essentially has has been a premium automaker anyway. The 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 F one fifty business, the F series business, is basically a, a premium vehicle that that supports the entire business. And if you look at the Machi and you look at the Lightning and you look at the where the the kinds of electric vehicles they're putting out there, no one's expecting Ford to flood the market with cheap EVs anytime soon. It's a it's they're a, they're a truck and a Mustang company. They're a premium, so so. I don't see them necessarily. there, I see them as a, 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 a an outlier a little bit because they're a little bit ahead of you know GM and, and some of the Toyota certainly and and some of the other really big players in terms of of investing in EVs. But they're investing in premium, and and it looks like they're going to continue right there. Right rather than making a electric Ranger sized truck or an electric Maverick or an electric you know crossover or some little affordable crossover they're just making another version of the f series right they're going to a new a new truck platform for their big new ev investment and and so to me like them partnering with tesla is is less of a they're ahead of the rest of the industry moving towards this because it makes sense for everybody i think it's that it's it's a sort of an a, a tacit admission that ford is fundamentally uh, Going to be a, a, a niche player in EVs, a premium niche player in EVs for the for the foreseeable future, because Tesla, their charger network and their to the uptime and the experience and all those things may be irrefutably better than C, CCS. Better, better. They, they, I absolutely concede that they are but there's a separate problem which is which is that like certainly in places like california whatever like those chargers are already really really crowded and really really overused just by the tesla fleet and so there is an entirely right so so if ford were imagining Building, you know, really high volumes of EVs in the near future that we're going to access that Tesla. That would be not just a problem for Ford, but it would be a problem for Tesla as well. And so I think what makes this deal work is the reality that Ford is trying to get its EVs to a place where they make profits and not necessarily a place where they dominate market share. Um, if Ford were trying to dominate EV market share, that that strategy would be incompatible with this move. might it might be.
2: So an interesting thing that you point out about the crowded, already crowded superchargers that um, one of our Autonicast fans and supporters um, texted me about is why under the initial relationship, which is you know not just the tech going into the next generation Ford um, vehicles. But the relationship that starts today, which is the ability to have the adapter to use the Tesla superchargers, is that um, the number that they listed in that agreement is actually smaller than the total number that are in the U.S. um, by several thousand, I think. So I I, I, and I don't have the answer to that question, um, but perhaps it's avoiding those already high pressured areas particularly in California. Um, it's a question that, you know, I, maybe someone who listens to this will will have the answer to, but that is an interesting point as well. There's also all this existing infrastructure out there, right? That like, is it possible to just simply improve what exists out there in terms of CCS? And I think that there is, if if a, particularly around the interface, the financial interaction, um, between the, the driver and the charger. If you can basically think of like, how do we make this better than pumping gas, even if the charge time isn't as fast as fueling, but you take out that financial exchange um, problem, I think that CCS could have a real future here. I'm not necessarily ready to say like, it's the demise of all of it. I think that there's just too much infrastructure out there But they've got to improve. I mean, it should be a little bit of a wake-up call. Like there is, you're right that that Ford is pushing the premium end of EVs, um, but it still doesn't change the fact that like a major U.S. automaker is choosing to actually partner with Tesla as opposed to going with the plentiful um, infrastructure out there. Actually, if you look at the number of chargers out there, there are a lot. They're just all bad. A lot of them are bad or, or you go to them as Alex said, and there's a very high likelihood that none of them will work like basic stuff that has just not been thought through. They put it up, they set it up in the middle of the desert or wherever you're road tripping. And then they're out. And it's not just about the number of chargers really it's the number that are working and working well and are easier to use than um, pumping gas.
1: One other thing I would say too is I really hope for, and I'm sure they've they've you know they're aware of this, but but I really hope Ford got its agreement uh, in very ironclad like you know formalized terms because if we know anything about about Tesla and Elon Musk, it's one moment they're like. Let's partner, and it's all about the mission, and we want to help everyone else be successful at EBs. And the next moment, they're they're shanking everyone you know uh, they possibly can. And um, in the words of Warren Buffett, y- you can't make a good deal with a bad person. Maybe you can if 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 you have you know enough lawyers and you can get the terms sort of nailed down hard enough. And I do know that the, this deal had been in the works for a really really long time, um, so that gives me some confidence that that they've able been able to to nail that down. But but for me, I would be. Even if I had a really ironclad contract with really you know tough penalties for non for non you know uh, performance or whatever, I feel like there's just always anytime you do any deal with with someone like Elon Musk, there's always going to be the risk that he just says whatever. Like I, I just you know this this situation has changed and and I'm going to go in a different direction now and like screw the consequences, sue me. Um, so you know, certainly hope it knows- doesn't come to that. <laughs>
2: But, um, uh, okay well i okay, think it's Kirsten. i think it's yeah <laughs> i think it's good to end on you know some light references to shanking and violence and lawyers Super yes. really good way Farley. to end an episode
0: i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna text you right now be like you know what ed just said you know what ed just said <laughs> <laughs> um
2: well so on that note um it's good to be back so yeah, i'm happy to, to see you see you all and have this conversation and to our audience we're happy to be back as well and thank you for listening to another episode of the atomic cast